Howdy! Welcome to another week of Canon Calls. This week, I had the opportunity to chat with Dr. Tim Harmon, who teaches at New St. Andrews College. Dr. Harmon teaches Reformed Systematics at the grad level and a few theology courses for the undergrads. This week, we chatted about systematic theology, the late John Webster, and lastly, Dr. Harmon offered a few recommendations on where to start if you'd like to wade into the systematic theology pool. Additionally, I wanted to point you to Douglas Wilson's Westminster Systematics, Comments and Notes on the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession of Faith is often treated as the Bible of the Reformed Church. Yet how few of us have actually read it? In this study guide, Douglas Wilson takes the theologically interested layman through the confession itself, reading the entire text and succinctly and clearly analyzing topics, including the Trinity, the Fall, God's covenant with man, the sacraments, free will, justification, the civil magistrate, and more. For those who want to dig deeper, Wilson has assigned extra readings and comprehension questions from three different authors. A.A. Hodge, Thomas Vincent, and Francis Turretin. The perfect medicine for a culture obsessed with word-bending and qualification, Westminster Systematics offers an unapologetic and systematic distillation of the whole Word of God. Without further ado, meet Dr. Tim Harmon. Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. A special guest this week is a professor at New St. Andrews College, Dr. Tim Harmon. Thanks for being generous with your time, sir. Yeah, glad to be here. So I've done a biblical theology episode in the past with Dr. Andy Nacelli uh, from Bethlehem College. And so now I thought it's the time for my systematic side. So you teach at New St. Andrews. You did a whole class on John Webster. I did, yeah. For undergrad. Yep. Very cool. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, we just read through a selection of uh, his essays and together discussed them. So it was more of uh, what I think of, even though it was for undergraduates, more of a master's type seminar, uh, where instead of me just doing a bunch of talking, uh, we read through, as I said, selections of his work and discussed them together. Awesome. Awesome. And what else do you, are you doing at New St. Andrews? Uh, I teach freshman theology. Uh, every other year, I also teach Reform Systematics, which is for master's students only, and then do a number of electives. Love it. Okay. Very cool. And I didn't have the opportunity to have you, but I, I hear fantastic stuff. So, Well, maybe in the future. Um, now, you recently moved here from Portland. Yep. Now, I did have a question. You mentioned you do miss the food. Mm, yeah. What was the best slice of pizza in Portland? That's a hard question because there is a lot of good pizza in Portland. I can tell you where I'd, I'm going to go to Portland next week, and I can tell you where I'd go. Maybe you don't care about burritos. Okay. No, tell me. Uh, a place called Pepino's. Pepino's. Yeah. So it, right. it's just down the street from a seminary I used to work at in Portland called Western Seminary. And so it was just kind of one of those things where it was hard every day not to want to head down to Pepino's <laughs> and get a burrito. So yeah, okay. give a shout out All to, right. so to Pepino's. Pepino's. Yeah. All right. Okay. So can you do us a favor by differentiating um, when we say I'm studying systematic theology. What does that mean? What are you doing? Yeah, great question. 
I'd want to start here. The first thing I'd want to say is that uh, it's a type of theology. Uh, and as such, it has the same subject matter as all theology. And I, and I think about that as a twofold subject matter. Uh, number one, God and himself. And number two, all else in relation to God. So I want to start there thinking about, okay, what is the subject matter of theology? Uh, and that in approaching the subject matter, uh, another thing that systematic theology has in common with every other kind of theology uh, is that it has the same ultimate end that all theology does, which I think of as, as divine glory and creaturely beatitude. Uh, so it's for God's glory, for our good. Uh, further, it embraces the same uh, methodological approach, if you could put it that way, as all theology. It's, it's an exercise uh, of faith, seeking understanding. Uh, it's carried out ideally in the context of the church. Uh, it's accompanied by prayer, uh, praise, and confession. Uh, along with that, it has the same source the, that all theology does, which is uh, God's revelation. Uh, indeed, it is simply an attempt to confess or literally to speak with what God has spoken in Scripture. And finally, as with all theology, uh, its language is shaped by the grammar of Scripture. So with all that out of the way, uh, second, I would want to say that systematic theology is a specific type of theology, namely, surprise, surprise, theology that is systematic. Uh, and this is not so much about it following a prescribed method, but rather the term systematic specifies uh, a unique proximate end. If the ultimate end is, is God's glory, our good, it has a unique proximate end, and that end is this, to provide a coherent, conceptual representation of God's revelation about himself and how all else relates to him. So in short, systematic theology is about coherence, meaning that it labors to relate parts to the whole. Step back and think for a moment. I mean, God is one and he's infinitely so. His knowledge is, is comprehensive. It's timeless. Uh, it's effortless. It's all of a piece and it's eternally so. Uh, however, for us, we're not God. <laughs> and so as, as finite, complex creatures, uh, we cannot immediately see how every part of what God has revealed relates to the whole. And so this is where systematic theology comes in. It aims at coherence. That's the key word. And, and it works to relate uh, every part to the whole, operating on the conviction that not only uh, not only that God is one, but further that all God's revealed truth is one. So when we speak of systematic theology, we're speaking of the discipline of seeking to develop a biblically faithful account of the interrelationships between the various aspects of God's unified revelation about himself and about us, about creatures. Owing to this unique aim, Systematic theology has some unique characteristics, I think, that, that do set it apart from other types of theology. In, in general, it's uh, what we might call synchronic rather than diachronic, meaning that it's concerned uh, with the relationships that exist on, uh, you can imagine it as uh, a vertical axis. So the relationships um, that, that exist all at once rather than those that exist on a horizontal uh, axis through time. 
further, because the goal of systematic theology is coherence, it is particularly concerned with matters of order, especially logical order and proportion. Um, any questions there? I'd like to, to move on to talk about a, a couple of items that I think clarify even further what systematic theology is. But before doing that... No, why don't you jump in? I think two things. Number one, it's helpful to clarify what it is not. So to, to kind of disabuse us of any incorrect notions of what systematic theology is, number one. And number two, uh, to compare and contrast it with other kinds, other types of theology. So, so first, what systematic theology is not. Uh, it is not merely an attempt to express all that the Bible has to say about a given topic. Uh, I think sometimes people have that kind of idea of what systematic theology is, and, and certainly systematic theology does some of that, but that is not all it is. It's not simply about developing, say, uh, a theological dictionary or a theological encyclopedia. So you want to know about what the Bible has to say uh, uh, about sacrifice, clothing, I mean, just any given topic, you can open up your systematic theology, there's a heading and, and a list of Bible verses, and uh, we have an aggregate of all that Scripture has said about this topic. That's, that's not really what systematic theology is. Uh, furthermore, it's not an improvement on Scripture. So it doesn't seek to go uh, beyond Scripture, but rather the goal, as with all of theology, is simply to confess, that is, to, to re-speak Scripture and to do so well. Uh, furthermore, it's not developed merely or, 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 uh, or primarily as a response to sub-Christian ideas. Uh, its primary posture is not defensive. Rather, its primary posture is constructive. It's looking to build positively. It's looking to, 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 to look to Scripture and, again, as I, as I said before, to put together a coherent account of, of all that Scripture has to say about everything. Uh, it, it's not furthermore, driven primarily by the questions that we bring to Scripture. Rather, it's an attempt to conform our thinking to the whole of what Scripture presents. Uh, in other words, it begins not with our questions, but with God's revelation. Finally, it's, it's not limited to any particular idiom. Uh, I think this is quite important uh, when people think about systematic theology. Sometimes they might think. Uh, you know, just about a scholastic type of approach to theology. If you're going to do systematics, this is what it's going to look like. Everything's going to be in a particular kind of uh, outline form. Um, really, that, that same aim of coherence uh, with a view to of relating all the parts to the whole can be pursued uh, using all kinds of forms, scholastic forms, uh, a, a dialectical approach. I think even narrative forms of expression can be used. Uh, so, having said that about what systematic theology is not, let me uh, compare and contrast systematic theology with some other types of theology. So, so one helpful way of doing this is to compare uh, ends or purpose of each type. Uh, so, so what is the end of systematic theology? Well, as I've said before, it's to provide a coherent, conceptual presentation of the whole. Uh, so, even when one part is focused on, the goal is always to relate that part to the whole. Now, as such, its goal is more akin to uh, presenting a picture that can be seen 
all at once rather than telling a story that unfolds over time. Now, uh, biblical theology, on the other hand, and here I'm talking about uh, the redemptive historical approach, uh, which is a common approach in, in evangelical circles, different kinds of biblical theology that you could do. But to compare and contrast systematic theology with biblical theology, uh, you would say the biblical theology is, uh, its end is to provide an account of the development of parts, uh, uh, a part or parts of the whole. So the scope as well within which that development is studied, it can be limited. So you could be looking at the development that takes place, uh, that takes uh, that occurs within just one book of the Bible. Uh, it's, it's more like telling a story than presenting a picture. A couple other kinds of theology, the end of historical theology, is just to understand how Christians have understood various aspects of theology in the past. And that could be either at one point in time or it could be throughout time. Uh, practical theology, that's to inform Christian practice. Uh, such as corporate worship, and then the end of apologetic theology is to defend the faith uh, or handle objections. Now, while distinctions can be made between these different types of theology, it's important to realize uh, that in reality, all these disciplines are interrelated and mutually implicating. So while they can be distinguished, they can't ultimately be separated. Uh, Further, it's important to point out that the foundation of all these disciplines is the same, and that's biblical exegesis, or to put it differently, uh, the attentive reading of Scripture. So, so the difference then, when, when you look at these different types of theology, is, is mostly about uh, which proximate aim one's exegesis is directed to. So, okay, how about this? So in light of that, you said you teach reform systematics mm-hmm. at the grad level. Yeah, that's a that's a full school year. So okay, four terms. Okay, so within that four terms, do you is is it uh, like do you build them in light of one another? Yeah, the, the sequence is very intentional. So so we start with foundational uh, doctrines. So we we begin with thinking about theological method. How should we even go about uh, this task? What is this task? Uh, we think about uh, the doctrines of God and creation, which really provide the foundation for everything else. And those are covered in the first two terms. Uh, the third term, we move to Christology, uh, incarnation and, and salvation. You really can't understand the incarnation unless you have that prior capital uh, that, that, you've, uh, uh, that you've gained through studying the doctrines of God and creation, then finally move to the doctrine of the church and eschatology. So that's that's the basic sequence that I use. One thing you said in your definition, there were two things that I wanted mm. that I thought yeah. were really good, and I wanted to come back to. Um, and this may come up in another way later, but you said it was, it's a creaturely good. Yeah. So it's it's edifying. Yeah. Unto the person doing the studying. Absolutely. It, it's sometimes the case. Folks just think. The minute you start putting your head in that book, mm. your relationship with God is going to suffer. Or, you know, there's a, sometimes people put odd tensions on study and like your personal faith. Is, yeah. that, is that true, I guess? Well, I, I don't think it's, it's true. It certainly doesn't need to be true. Um, when I think about 
the doing of theology and why I love the doing of theology, I'll, I'll start by saying that for me, an interest in theology uh, 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 arose um, shortly after becoming a Christian. I found that I just loved to read the Bible all of a sudden. It was it was just <laughs> kind like of that. amazing just overnight. Yeah. I really wanted to read the Bible, number one. And number two, I really wanted to be around other Christians. And so as I'm reading the Bible, uh, as now I'm spending time with other believers, I mean, I have questions about Scripture that really are arising because I'm reading the Bible. Uh, I want to understand it better. And so that initially, uh, a love for Scripture, a love for other Christians, all in the context of uh, a regenerate heart that, uh, more than anything else, loved God. Uh, and this was a new experience for me. Um, I, I wanted to know about God. I wanted to know about his word. I wanted to know about the church. And so theology was just a means of of me coming to know my Lord better, coming to know better how to read his word, coming to know better how to relate to other believers. Um, Can I ask, when was that? How old were you? Uh, 35. Okay. Yeah. So I'm turning 46 in a couple of days here. So um, yeah, about 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago. Okay. So you became a believer, mm-hmm. started reading your Bible. Yeah. And then you did what then? Did, I assume you went to school or did you go to school for that? I mean, I know you did, but can you tell me about how that happened? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I began to try to make sense of what I'd read in scripture. And one of the things that I really wanted to make sense of, because it didn't, uh, I mean, I, I couldn't really account for it, how it happened was my own conversion. <laughs> and, and so someone gave me a, a book by R.C. Sproul called Grace Unknown, and it's a, an introduction to the doctrines of grace. And as I was reading through that book, uh, I, I read that regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes uh, any kind of love for God and regeneration is solely a work of God bringing you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And that just made so much sense to me because I couldn't make any sense of how overnight I now had an interest in God and an interest in the things of God an interest in the people of God. Um, at the same time, uh, the church I was attending, uh, the small group leader, I joined a small group, was leading the men in that group through John uh, Owen's Overcoming Sin and Temptation, which is uh, a, a collection of three of Owen's works uh, on uh, of the mortification of sin in believers, of temptation, and indwelling sin. So as I began to read through this book, and it was it was tough sledding, but it was edifying nonetheless. Um, I also uh, began to understand what it looked like uh, to grow in godliness. Uh, so so these helped to provide. A foundation for my understandings of uh, these doctrines of sa- salvation and sanctification. It was all very, very practical at that point, but it also whet my appetite for more theological study. And I found that I started to be given opportunities to to serve in ways in the local church, whether it was just setting up chairs and then uh, leading a Bible study, uh, just helping out in different ways. I uh, found this growing desire in my heart to go to seminary. And the primary reasons that I wanted to do this were twofold. I wanted to understand the Bible better, <laughs> uh, what Christian doesn't, and I, and I wanted to be better equipped to to serve the church. And, and ultimately, God opened the doors to do that. And uh, lived in Seattle at that time, but we moved to Portland, uh, and I attended Western Seminary uh, through encouragement 
of professors there and my pastor. I continued on with uh, with studies. And so that's that's kind of how this all developed. Yeah. But it all started by God doing a work in my heart. Uh, it all started out of a love for God, out of a love for his word and a love for his people. So the studying of theology did not impede your ability to do the chairs at church? No, absolutely not. <laughs> Still quite capable of doing chairs. <laughs> awesome. And then another aspect of your definition with systematics was that I believe you said ideally it happens in the local church. Yeah. Uh, do you see that happening in term when you say ideally? Do you, is it still in that ideal stage mm. when you talk about general evangelicalism, as far as you can tell? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely think that it's happening in the local church, and I think that any time you remove it from the local church, um, it it withers and it dies. Uh, so. But that doesn't necessarily mean that doing theology in an academic setting is lifeless. Uh, it's so not a compromise or anything like that. It's not necessarily a compromise. No, I, I think that you can you can be firmly planted in the local church, be serving your local church, uh, be, be doing theology uh, in order to serve the church, and yet you can also participate in the academy to the degree that that is um, an aid to what you're involved in in the church. I think the, the minute it becomes a hindrance rather than an aid, uh, then you'd probably want to let that go. Right. Now, uh, additionally, you did a doctorate. Mm-hmm. And um, as I mentioned in my original email to you, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about that because you studied, you had the opportunity to study under one of my favorite systematic theologians, mm-hmm. who's John Webster, yeah. the late John Webster. Yeah. How did you? How did that happen? How did you get there? Well, God's providence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, was, it was kind of uh, a fluke. I, as I mentioned before, I'd been encouraged to to move forward in my studies, um, and knew that I wanted to study the doctrine of Scripture. hadn't really read any Webster, but I had somebody recommend to me uh, one of his books, Holy Scripture: A Dogmatic Sketch. And as I was reading through it, I thought, man, this guy, um, you know, he's doing important work on the doctrine of Scripture at that point. I didn't really have it in my mind uh, that I'd be able to study with him, um, but just kind of through, as I began pursuing, okay, where, thinking about where am I going to be able to do a PhD, I thought about doing one overseas, uh, looked at, at schools in North America as well. Um, just one of the opportunities that came to the fore was an opportunity to study with him. And it's not really something that I... Um, uh, explicitly pursued. It was, it was more like a door that opened. Uh, and when I did, I thought, um, yeah, I, we're going to go ahead with this and ended up being a good experience. Love it. Now, did you do the distance or did you? I did it distance. Okay. Yeah. So okay. I would, I would kind of fly back and forth, um, to the UK, to Scotland, um, uh, uh usually two times a year. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what, what did you end up writing under? What did I end up writing on? On your thesis, yeah. Yeah, the... yeah I, I wrote on the doctrine of inspiration, um, which is a doctrine that Webster had done a bit of work on, uh, but I thought that there was, not to improve on what he'd done, but I just, <laughs> I thought there was, that there was more to explore there. Um, and so I, uh, my goal in writing the thesis, because when I was in seminary, uh, I had a hard time with the doctrine of inspiration, not because I didn't believe it, but because um, what I read on it, I, I wanted to go deeper than uh, what was 
what, what I could find. There, there were additional questions that I had that I didn't have answers to, and so I wanted to explore those. So my, my thesis is, it's a constructive thesis. Uh, so a lot of thesis theses um, are, are not constructive. So what you do is you say, you know, I wonder what John Owen has to say about this particular topic. And so you, you write a thesis that just explores uh, his work on a particular topic. Uh, Webster encouraged me to do a constructive thesis, uh, and so I went ahead with that. So it's it's more uh, my setting forth uh, a systematic theology of inspiration. Awesome, awesome. Um, okay, there was a there was something. Um, so John Webster died in May of 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen R. Holmes mm-hmm. wrote something for Christianity Today. Yeah, and I, there was a particular quote that I really liked Mm. and I wanted to read it to you. And then you tell me maybe if you wanted to expand on that or if you're like, Nope, that was exactly it. So a great question. uh, He asked a great question. I think in Christianity today, he said, why should any reader of Christianity today be interested in his life then? Mm. Um, Which is essentially, hopefully the question I want to ask about this and this podcast and and the listeners. And he said, there's an idea around in the churches that studying theology is the surest way to destroy faith. Mm. 50 years ago, that was uncomfortably close to being true. English language academic theology too often began with an explanation of why traditional beliefs, the creed, that sort of thing, could not possibly be true, and then constructed some pale imitation out of a passing intellectual fad. John was a leading member of a group of theologians who changed all that. Um, is that would that be your experience? In, in terms of knowing him and why, why you would recommend his work to somebody? That he changed the face of theological study, particularly in the UK. Well, I mean, I think he did help to do that. He was instrumental in that work. Um, so I would say yes. <laughs> I think you should read him for the impact that he's had on others. And, and really, I mean, in, in, uh, in so many of the tributes to John after his passing, uh, what gets said is that, you know, his, his legacy... Um, ultimately is, I mean, his writings, yes, but also his students, because he took uh, just so much care in mentoring so many people. He was extremely generous with his time. I can't tell you uh, on how many occasions I've talked to people who have told me, who did not study with him, who who have told me, yeah, you know, I had a, um, I was interested in his work and I I had a question and um, I just thought, well, why not? I'll send him an email and, you know, the, I always kind of get the same story that he replied almost at once with, um, you know, a, a, a lengthy, uh, kind of detailed, incisive answer. And that was my experience as well, even working overseas, uh, that he was always just quick to respond um, and with just thoughtful, careful responses. So he, he really invested in his students. He invested in other people. I, he had a very pastoral heart and he did his theology in the church and he did it for the church and out of uh, a love of God. And that really comes through. So, um, so yes, for his impact, I guess, on the state of theology in the UK, uh, for his impact just within the church, uh, for his care in discipling uh, other, other Christians, particularly students, students uh, of theology, students of ministry. And then um, you should read his work as well. Um, uh, because uh, it is uh, just as he exercised great love and care in in dealing with other uh, believers, 
he exercised great love, care, and diligence in the way that he crafted his writing. So he had the impact, but the particular kind of impact that he had mm. was it seems like there was a prevailing notion going through uh, modern theology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, can you describe that a bit for us? What, what was, in terms of, uh, as far as setting the stage for his impact, what was going on in theology that his impact was so big? Well, he, uh, in, in the one autobiographical account that uh, he wrote, which is, is, is brief, called Discovering Dogmatics, uh, he talks about, uh, and, and I think it exemplifies the, the kind of shift that he helped to affect. And so he talks about a transition from uh, criticism to confession. And so when he began his uh, career, his theological studies, he had fully bought into uh, a quite critical approach to the doing of theology. And so it really was about uh, bringing your ideas, your questions, your agenda to the text of Scripture and, and paying very little attention to what the church historically had to say. Uh, it, it, in a sense, you could say it was kind of characterized by a posture of standing over rather than underneath Scripture. Uh, and he came ultimately to, to find that particular approach hollow. Uh, and so he had uh, uh, something of a, uh, a turning point in his, his life where he let that go and he moved in the direction of confession. And he decided that he was going to do theology uh, from that point on in, with, and for the church, um, that he was going to do it in a way that was attuned to and, and sensitive to uh, the, the history of Christian thought. Uh, he, he was going to do decidedly Christian theology. Uh, and he was going to do, as, as it, uh, one of his more famous essays is called, theological theology, theology that's really about God. Which, sounds, which may sound to those outside of that world a bit redundant or what's, yeah. what, what kind of theology would people be doing otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a real thing. Absolutely. And it's something that yeah. was totally corroding yep. uh, uh, theology, and like you said, especially overseas. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, how, how would you see, uh, what, what would you say as far as even historically the state of American theology uh, on that level? Um, would you say it, it also has similar issues, or would you say, no, it's a, it's a very distinct problem? How would you describe that? Well, it does have similar issues on the one hand. However, uh, I think evangelicalism, uh, a commitment to the gospel, is, I mean, that is still very much alive in American churches. And it's one of the reasons uh, that so many evangelical theologians and pastors in America have found Webster's work to be helpful. They've really resonated with what he's doing. Um, so it, it isn't that the state couldn't be better. But I, uh, I certainly think um, that we are not in the kinds of dire straits that we could be. Uh, what I would say, though, is that one of the things, and, and I've, I've seen a lot of improvement here just even in the last four or five years, but what, one of the areas for improvement is just, um, I think, a greater, um, a, a greater understanding of what the church has taught historically. Um, uh, becoming more literate when it comes to uh, what the church fathers wrote, um, how orthodoxy was developed and why it was developed in the way 
that it was. Uh, but but I feel like that is happening. Uh, you, you know, the buzzword now is theologies of retrieval. And so the idea is we're, we're actually going to look to the past as we think about what we're doing here in the present. Awesome. So uh, and one of the questions I have for you was um, as far as recommendations of mm-hmm. how folks want to get started. But before that question, what about in terms of Webster's work? So let's say someone... Um, wants his Amazon pages open, yeah. ready to order John Webster. What, what would you recommend in, store, uh, in terms of just wading into his work? Yeah, I mean, that's tough to answer because there's an embarrassment of riches there, even though he never finished um, his full, never completed his, his dogmatics, his multi-volume systematic theology. Um, but I, I point in a couple different directions. Um, his monograph, Holiness, which is one of only two monographs that he wrote, uh, which is actually a, a published series of, of lectures, but nonetheless, it is a monograph. Uh, holiness, I think, is uh, an excellent starting point, and, and, I, and I don't think it's too expensive, uh, so it's just an easy way to get into reading Webster. After that, I'd probably commend uh, Domain of the Word, which is a, a collection of essays, I believe, published in 2012. Okay. Is, so as far <laughs> maybe we'll get you in some like uh, systematics TMZ headline yeah. game here. Is Schleiermacher the ultimate villain of of uh, reform reformed uh, systematics? Well, he's cast in that way, and and certainly, I mean, even Bart saw um, who you know uh, it, himself is, is oftentimes <laughs> cast as the villain. But Bart saw Schleiermacher as uh, kind of the foil. And so, I mean, he was constantly, I th- it feels like he's constantly, even if it's not explicit, implicitly in his, in his own mind and dialogue with Schleiermacher. And I think what you have to recognize about Schleiermacher is um, here's a guy who in many ways, uh, whose intentions I think were good. Uh, he wanted to save Christianity from its culture despisers. Uh, and, yeah, he, and, was the, he was like, in his kind of yeah. perspective, he was the conservative guy trying yeah. to make it work. Yeah. So you have to keep that in mind when you read him. And so I think you can read him charitably, uh, and at the same time, you can read him critically. And you, and you can say, well, um, yeah, I, I think you were wrong here, here, and here, but I do appreciate uh, what you were trying to do. And even if you, you want to critique his, his motives for doing so, I mean, I, I think you want to read him with that in mind. Sure. Yeah, it, it, well, and the, the bottom line is that Schleiermacher, I believe, affected a turn, uh, and it's it's very much in keeping with that kind of critical approach to the doing of theology, or what became that critical approach, because he's he's the father of Protestant liberalism. Um, but he affected a turn uh, that really has produced. Um, we could it, it's 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 the water we're swimming in right now. Whether we're uh, doing theology as evangelicals, whether we're doing uh, theology in the church, whether we're doing it in the academy, it doesn't matter. Uh, that's just the water that we're doing theology in. And so it, I think it's a, it's a good thing to become familiar with Schleiermacher so that you can at least kind of be aware uh, of that water. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, now, uh, one last question before the recommendations. The rise of popularity of, of Herman Bovink mm-hmm. has been really encouraging hmm. and, and fun to watch and fun to see. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or, you know, was this just somebody we, like, it all of a sudden got, well, he got translated, he got into, translated English? into English? That's, and I that think that's, that's really the reason why. And, <laughs> and, and he's certainly worth reading, but it helps when you have somebody 
uh, worth reading that's been translated into a language you can read. So, yeah. But absolutely a positive thing, yeah. Okay. Hit us with the recommendations. You mentioned Confessions. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything else? Yeah, so let me start here. And I, I want to preface these uh, recommendations by saying this, and I'm going to paraphrase Luther. Hopefully he doesn't mind. Uh, but L- Luther says that to be a theologian and to be a Christian uh, are one and the same. Uh, so the question really isn't whether a Christian ought to be a theologian, but rather what kind of theologian a Christian is going to be. And the aim is to be a good one, uh, to think well about who God is and how all creation relates to him. And I think a big part of that is whether you're doing it in a, in a formal kind of sense, but the doing of systematics, which is simply trying to read scripture in a way that relates all the parts to the whole. Uh, so with that being said, uh, I, you know, one book that I would recommend as a starting point is there's a little book uh, by Kelly Capick called A Little Book for New Theologians. And it's uh, quite easy to read. You could probably read it in an afternoon, but it has two main parts. And, and the first is why study theology. So he goes through that uh, and he, he helps to under, uh, helps to explain, helps uh, to provide an understanding of, of why we should even care about this at all. And then number two, uh, he talks about, okay, he's hoping to convince you that you should do theology. Uh, and, and having done so, he then moves on to talk about the characteristics of faithful theology and faithful theologian. So how to do good theology, how to be a good theologian. So that, that would be probably my first recommendation. Uh, the second would be, this might sound rather obvious, but read the Bible. Uh, if, if you have a regular daily habit of reading scripture, particularly if you do something like a read through the Bible in a year plan, uh, you will begin to think, whether you realize it or not, uh, systematically. You'll, you'll want to know how all the parts relate to the whole, and you'll start seeing connections within Scripture. You'll start seeing the Bible as a whole the more time that you spend in it. So that's the second recommendation. The third is uh, I would expose yourself to creeds, confessions, and catechisms. Uh, read the Apostles' Creed, even memorize it. Uh, the Athanasian Creed, the Nicene Creed, Go wild, the, the Chalcedonian Definition. Uh, you build up to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Heidelberg Catechism. So become familiar with these statements of faith, because in many ways what these are trying to do is to provide uh, kind of a shorthand way of summing up the coherence of Scripture. I would in addition, supplement that with uh, some classics. So I already mentioned Augustine's Confessions. Uh, one series I would commend would be the popular Patristic series uh, published by St. Vladimir's Press. Uh, I'd probably start with Gregory of Nazianzus. Uh, they have a volume titled On God and Christ. His five theological orations are included in that. Uh, and then Athanasius's On the Incarnation. So I'd probably start there. Um, then, you know, you've... Uh, uh, you could gain some some theological muscles. Uh, I, I would move on and read the first part of Thomas Aquinas's Summa, uh, which has to do with the nature of theology and the doctrines of God and creation. And what you're going to find is that you know Thomas is actually pretty readable, um, and it may be tough sledding. It is tough sledding at points, but you can do it. And so I would work through that, and then uh, kind of the the final. I mean, I could go on and on, but kind of the, the final classic work that I would commend would be uh, read book one of Calvin's Institutes on God and Creation. 
Uh, and again, you can read Calvin. And actually, Calvin's a lot of fun to read. Uh, he's smart. He's, he's witty. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's not dry at all. Uh, so I would commend Calvin's, the, just at least do book one of Calvin's Institutes. Um, and so those would be my recommendations. Uh, and then I want to give just two points of general advice on reading. Number one, read less extra biblical books, but read good ones. Uh, I would avoid a reading diet that's just filled with new or popular works. It's, it's not that you can't read any of them, uh, but if that's your total diet uh, when it comes to theological reading, I think that that diet needs to be adjusted a little bit. Uh, and then also, I would say don't read from only one era uh, of redemptive history. There, there's something to learn from the great theological thinkers of every era. Believe it or not, God's been at work <laughs> providentially, uh, salvifically in people's lives um, you know, before the 20th century. So I, I, I would kind of dip into what some past thinkers have said. And then uh, finally, let me add one more thing. I already mentioned this, but I think it's so important. Read charitably. So avoid reactionary reading or reading that is motivated simply by a desire to find error. Uh, but at the same time, do read critically. Uh, not all views are complementary, and not every theological perspective accords with the truth. Be a better Christian when you read. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. <laughs>